0: Welcome to the Creatives with AI podcast. I'm your host, David, and this is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. On today's show, we chat with Russ Shaw, CBE, founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. In our wide-ranging conversation, we touch on the current status of artificial intelligence in the UK and the UK standing in the global AI landscape, Russ's observations on AI from London Tech Week, and Russ provides some fascinating insights into India's tech transformation. Russ is the founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. He originally founded Tech London Advocates in 2013 to ensure an independent voice of the technology community was heard but with a focus on the private sector. Since then, he's been championing London as a global tech hub and campaigning to address some of the biggest challenges facing tech companies in the UK. Global Tech Advocates, founded in 2015, is now present in 29 hubs around the globe with over 30,000 members. In 2019, Russ was recognized as a tech titan in the Evening Standards Progress 1000 list of London's most influential people, and Russ was awarded a CBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours list in 2021 for services to technology and to business in London. He's a founding partner of London Tech Week, a London Tech Ambassador for the Mayor of London, and a trustee for Founders for Schools and the Government's Digital Skills Partnership. Links to Russ's profile and social media will be in the show notes on our website at creativeswith.ai. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Russ. Russ, it's very nice to have you on today.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I always like to start off and ask people, how are you doing? I
1: can't complain, actually. I'm doing okay. It's It's been a busy few months, a lot going on across Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. So, um, But all in all, looking good and some nice things lined up for the autumn as well. So uh, all in all, I'm in a good place.
0: Excellent. Maybe a good place to start was if you just gave a couple of minutes on the background of Tech London Advocates and what Tech London Advocates is, I think it'll just help people who aren't familiar with with TLA. So maybe start there. Okay,
1: very happy to. So Tech London Advocates is um, an open, inclusive, diverse group of all kinds of tech leaders which includes founders, entrepreneurs, investors, corporates, academics, professional services, all coming together in a voluntary capacity to do two things. One is to support and promote the startups and scale-ups in the London tech ecosystem. And two, to be more of an independent grassroots voice about both the challenges and opportunities in London tech when speaking to media, government and key stakeholders. And and I do all of this pro bono as my my give back to tech. The group's been up and running for 10 years. We now have, we've just ticked over 16,000 Tech London advocates here in the capital across the UK and in over 70 countries around the world, which is quite remarkable. And then I've replicated this model globally. So I license the brand, the IP and the operating principles for a whopping one pound a year. Um, So it's not about making money, but it's, it's putting in proper commercial arrangements to create similar volunteer driven groups of tech leaders all over the world. We've got groups in other parts of the UK, Europe, Asia Pacific, India, the Americas. We launched our first group in Africa, in Ghana last year, all modeled on what we started with TLA 10 years ago. So that's kind of what I do. And I should also add for Tech London Advocates, because I guess we'll talk about it a bit. We're a co-founding partner of London Tech Week. We just had the 10th anniversary of London Tech Week, as you know, David. So we've been doing this for a long time, quite a special week, but we've been in there right from the, right from the beginning. And um, it's great to see it just go from strength to strength.
0: And full disclosure, um, I should say I'm an advocate and have been an advocate as well since 2015. Yes, I think great. So I've I've been around for quite a while as well, um, sort of and participating in events in London Tech Week and all of that. Obviously, the AI uh, Summit was part of London Tech Week right. this time. And I wanted to kind of get you on after London Tech Week. And I know you're super busy and everything, but I thought it would be really interesting to give you a chance to to be really busy during London Tech Week, to talk to loads of different companies, loads of different people, get all sorts of different perspectives. I'm gonna make a guess that AI was probably a fairly large part of the conversations that you were having with people.
1: It was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can't imagine this. Yes. What was the general sentiment, I think, that you that you got from over that week? Because now that you've had a couple of weeks to kind of sit and really let it yeah. resonate with you a little bit, what? you know, was there like a big divide in opinions and, you know, what were the main arguments? Yeah,
1: I think, I don't think there was that much of a divide. I think it was more a coming together for people to 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 learn more from each other, to hear from different types of leaders about how they view what's going on with AI, generative AI, large language models, etc. I mean, just to step back and give your, your listeners some context, we had, I think over 30,000 delegates at London Tech Week so it's the largest one we've done by far and over 40% were from overseas so there were massive a massive amount of international delegates which you know, gave the the event a a very international feel. And to your question about AI, it was great to have that mix of international leaders so that we weren't just in our London or UK bubble, but we really were able to talk to people from around the world and, and, and understand what they're thinking about. So it was part of pretty much every event I attended. I attended 25 events throughout the week. But my last event was a great event from our Tech London Advocates Creative Tech Group, which I know you're a part of, and it was focused on AI in the area of design and innovation. And it was a really interesting discussion to bring together more of the, the creative minds, if you will, the folks who are out there thinking about the future, the, the design folks who are you know designing the products and services of the future and to get their views on where this is going but it was part of every discussion you know the prime minister rishi sunak opened london tech week ai was an integral part of his opening remarks he then did a one-on-one fireside chat with demis Hassabis from uh, deep uh, google DeepMind. so right away the conversation was going into ai and what that all means he the prime minister reminded us that he's planning to host an ai summit in the autumn and to invite the world to come here because I think he feels that there's an opportunity for the UK to be a leader perhaps the leader when it comes to rules and regulations around how to use AI going forward. So that was always in the backdrop. You mentioned the AI Summit. That, that was a two-day part of the London Tech Week event. There's so many events and fringe events happening during the week. It was integral to that. So you, you couldn't quite escape AI even if you wanted to but it wasn't the only topic a lot of discussions around sustainability climate change climate tech you know what is london doing in that regard always always discussions around diversity equity and inclusion and all the work that we need to keep doing to drive a greater to drive greater representation and inclusion in tech because i think it's it's one of our biggest challenges and problem areas so that was kind of the backdrop from a lot of interesting discussions.
0: Yeah, um, it's been quite interesting to watch it progress. You just watch the discussion progress over time from, I think, ChatGPT really publicly was available in as early as November, but it wasn't until kind of GPT-4, I think, came out in February or March time that that really started to capture everyone's imagination. This is going to be a really general, broad question, but sort of based on the conversations that you've had and, and the people that you've talked to, Let's look at the UK specifically, maybe for the minute. Where How do you think that's going to evolve in the UK over the next few years?
1: I think maybe I'll talk about the UK in a moment, maybe a bit more broadly. I think we have to be prepared that in the near term, I don't think there's going to be. And when I say the near term, I say the next two to three years. I don't believe there's going to be as dramatic a shift as the hype is conveying. And, and the hype is there for a good reason because you know you talked about you know chat GPT for, you know, I started using this through the Microsoft platform back in January, and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And I what I couldn't believe is you know the quality I thought was very good, but just how accessible. It is to anybody who wants to use it. That, to me, is the transformational bit of this. So, But that said, everybody's piling in. Every startup or scale-up I meet is an AI startup or scale-up. And I think we just have to be very careful that the near term, we all still need to come to to grips with this, with this. The, The disruption is coming. We don't want the disruption to get too far ahead of the regulatory environment. You know, We've already seen the European Union take some actions, which I agree with some, but not all of that. The UK, to your point, is also trying to figure this out. You know, The CMA is, is being tasked with looking at this whole area, which I think is a good thing. But if you look at the UK specifically, and the way I try and explain this to people is, You can't just look at AI in isolation. You have to look at the broader ecosystem. And David, for me, there's kind of four key components where I think we can measure our progress as we move towards this AI future, which is indeed coming. The first is around computing power. You know, the the quantum capabilities, you know, how quickly we as a nation can build our computing capabilities and, and the Chancellor's allocated money to super fast computers and quantum. And to me, that's a really important part of the discussion. And in relation to that part of the computing power, to me, is all around chips, how chips are designed and how chips are manufactured. And earlier this year, we sent an open letter to Rishi Sunak, calling on him to publish a UK semiconductor strategy. The UK is already out, I'm sorry, the US is already out there with its Chips Act as is the EU. I was in India last November with our Global Tech Advocates Group, and they are moving very quickly in the semiconductor space. China, obviously, from a technology point of view, a lot of countries are putting restrictions on what China can access have access to. So China is doubling down on its capabilities. So Japan is also a big player in in chips, as is obviously Taiwan, where most of these chips are manufactured. So where does that leave the UK? We now have a strategy, which is great, although it is missing and, and, and the government has said they will come back in the autumn with the manufacturing component of it. But within that, there's a focus on intellectual property, research and development. How do we get behind more talent through our universities? South Wales is a world leader in compound semiconductors, so a bit different from silicon chips. That all forms the basis of of the strategy, which will take multiple years to roll out. So for me, that bucket, if you will, is around computing. Then you have the data set piece of this. And I've been in a number of discussions, both at London Tech Week and subsequent to that, about how do we ensure that we have good, robust data sets where the UK can, you know, if you're gonna be successful in AI, you need to have large data sets. Big markets like the US and China have those capabilities. The big tech companies have enormously large data sets. We're not in that position. However, we have the National Health Service and, you know, the quality of the data is not probably where it needs to be, but you have a, a very large data set there. We just had London Data Week. So two weeks after London Tech Week, we had London Data Week led by Theo Blackwell, the chief digital officer for London. And he's done a brilliant job over the years, really focusing on data, open source data, what the mayor of London's office can do to make that data accessible And I haven't seen that in many other cities around the world. So, you know, that is kind of the opportunity that we have to focus on is the data sets. And within that, one other point I would make is the inherent biases in those data sets. And that comes back to the whole diversity and inclusion topic, which is how do we make sure that we're not baking in data sets that have biases already in them as we go into this generation of AI? The third piece is around talent. Do we have enough talent across the U.K.? that is fully equipped for the world of AI? And I would say no. Do we have a workforce that is fully equipped, not just on the high-end skills, but even more basic digital skills? We have so much that we need to do in that space. And I actually think with a, a general election coming up in the UK, you'll see the Labour Party really focus on digital skills. I got to hear from Lucy Powell the other day, who's the shadow secretary for what is still called in labor, digital culture, media, and sport, outlining this as a key priority. And then the fourth area is around the rules, the regulatory frameworks, et cetera. Where does the UK sit vis-a-vis the EU, vis-a-vis the US and other markets around the world? And I think this is where the prime minister also sees an opportunity. So I think in comparison to a US or China, we're going to have to work that much harder the flip side is we do have advances in many of those areas. London is already a booming AI hub with, you know, well over a thousand AI companies. So we have talent here. We need to increase the talent pool in order to support that. So I'm sorry, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I always think it's important to give people a broader context of it rather than the slice of AI what does the full ecosystem look like to ensure that we will be a world leader in AI? And I do think we will be.
0: You know, and training gets brought up quite quite frequently in a lot of the discussions that that I have. In fact, I've I've had Professor Stephen Watson on from Cambridge University, yes. talking about how he can use and universities might be able to use AI, not from just from the student side, but also from the teaching side. How you know how it can help teachers provide better materials it can help them write better class plans it can help them grade papers better and and you know student work better and faster and it can eventually you know they they expect it will kind of lead into students almost having a one to one teacher that they can go to and ask a lot more questions and if they can't understand something you know so we'll be able to tailor Education and learning to individual students. And, you know, so that's going to be a great advancement. But you're right, you know, we don't have those skills necessarily today. And how do we get from where we are now, you know, to that point?
1: You know, there are all kinds of research reports that are out there, but I think from everything that I've seen, there is upside in AI in terms of productivity and what it will do for people's jobs. I thought you did a a lovely job outlining for for teachers, for professors, how AI can really help them in their day-to-day job. And I think for many roles, for many occupations, that's going to be true. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the downside to this in terms of how jobs will be eliminated, but it can be a great productivity enhancer which is which is which is encouraging. On the educational side of this as well, as you were speaking about that, you know, I agree with what you're saying, but when some of these large language models came out, some of the companies that were most impacted adversely on the public markets with the edtech companies, I think Pearson's stock has dropped significantly, as has other ed tech providers, because their models are potentially at risk because what, uh, what AI is capable of doing from a, a student-teacher one-on-one relationship.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I think what's going to be interesting for them is how can they integrate the AI or, or some sort of AI into the things that they're already doing to make what they're doing better. And ultimately, whilst the market may react with a knee-jerk reaction now, it could be better for them in the long run because they're the experts at doing that already. So they'll be in the best position to figure out how to use AI to enhance what they're doing. And I totally agree with you. I think I'm a glass half full kind of guy about AI. Me too. You know, and I know on this podcast, we focus on the creative industries and, and that's mainly because I work in an office that's full of creatives. And, you know, since February, we've been talking about at lunch and all that sort of stuff, you know, we talk about all the time. AI and the impact. And, you know, we've got copywriters and and people who have been directly affected by this already. You know, copywriters are losing business. I had a young gentleman on recently who's in secondary school, and he used to write custom short stories for people on Fiverr. And he literally in March lost a hundred percent of his business because people could just go and get it done by the AI instead. So it's it's gonna be interesting, but I I do think that you know, certainly in the short term, we'll see a big economic benefit from it with the increased productivity. And that was a big thing that Sam Altman talked about when he was here at UCL. I don't know if you got a chance to see that.
1: No, I didn't, but I was encouraged and there was speculation when he was here, which proved to be true, that they would potentially be opening uh, their first non-US office in London, which they have announced that they would do. So we're, you know, delighted in that because I think it's another vote of confidence in London becoming a significant global hub for ai
0: how do you think the uk is poised i know we've talked about you know we we're thinking about being leading the world in maybe the regulation discussion and and Rishi sunak is you know having the, the the conference later this year and how how do you think overall with all of the things that we've considered and that you've talked about in your four points where where do you think the uk sits do you think we're in a good position or do you think those are going to prove to be very large challenges that may give someone else the the lag up.
1: I, th- I think we're in a good starting place compared to most other markets. Um, again, I mentioned U.S. and China, and, and probably will need to lump into India into that bucket as well. Which is, I think, India in ten years will have the largest tech tech ecosystem in the world, and we can talk about that later if you'd like. So, I think we're well placed. I do think we've got some some challenges that we're going to have to. Address, but maybe just to talk a little bit more because I also and I know you're, you're very much focused on the the creative industries, which is fantastic. I'm I sit on the Creative UK Council as kind of the tech person, always talking about creative tech, why it's important, etc. And I, I said at our most recent council meeting to the so the other leaders at Creative Tech, we really need to put together a paper on you know, the role of AI in the creative industries, where's the upside, where's the downside, what does this mean? And and I have talked to people about it, because I mean, you know, to your point about the the example that you used about this young copywriter, you know, we're going to hear more examples of, of that happening. And, and that is very difficult. But the flip side, you know, I also talk about how you know, and it's interesting with this emergence of AI, you know, this time last year, we were all focused on metaverse. And where's the metaverse going? And what does that mean? I mean, that hasn't gone away. And to me, all of these areas are interlinked. So as we amp up our computing power, as we build greater data sets, as we focus on getting more talent into the sector, obviously, AI is is, is out there as a, a clear tool. But the emergence of the metaverse, I think, is going to is going to come that much closer. And when I speak to people, particularly in the creative industries, that is a whole area that is going to require immense creative talent. Obviously deployed in a different way, but as we build a metaverse going forward, the creative skills that we're so good at in the UK across multiple aspects of of various creative sectors are going to come into play In the metaverse and to me that is exciting so when i talk to a lot of the creative folks that i engage with i always kind of say look think about where the world of digital is going take a look at the metaverse look at your own skill sets you know if you're in design if you're in production whatever it might be and think about what kind of skills you might need to enhance in your own individual portfolio because in two three five years time your skill set's going to re- be required in a whole new way, and that, to me, I think is going to create. And you know, the UK globally, you know, when I travel the world, you know, our, the recognition that we punch above our weight in tech is clearly there, which is wonderful. But the UK is is wonderfully known for its strength in the creative industries. Whether you go to China, India, the US, the UK is highly, highly regarded, you know, across a variety of areas. So I think there will be disruption, there will be job losses, but if we can collectively get our heads around this and say, we're going to put our future of the creative industries in this future world of digital and here are the things that we want to do and drive, I think that will create a whole new generation of talent that will position the UK in a very, very good way. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of creative thinking as we go through this transition. And that's why I mentioned to the Creative UK Council Let's get those thoughts out there now. Let's feed that. You know, when Rishi Sunak opened London Tech Week, he talked about digital and tech, but not once, not twice, but three times he talked about the importance of the creative industries. And I was sitting there in the audience saying, I can't wait to get to the next Creative UK Council and tell him he's talking about the creative industry, the way he talks about tech and to have a prime minister who understands these sectors is really important. You know, he's not going to be around forever, but how do we leverage that um, leadership to help build vi- greater vibrancies in these different sectors?
0: It's a great point, Russ. And I think, I think what's interesting about where we are now is, you know, of course, machine learning has been around for 30, 40 years. Yes. I mean, that's, it's, it's, and a lot of what we call AI is actually machine learning. And the, it's, it's important to make the distinction between the two. And I am going to have somebody on that's going to come on and, and really get into the nitty gritty about trying to help people understand what the difference is. But I think what captured everybody's imagination is that the the large language models and the stuff that's come out recently, you know, it feels more like it has some sort of intelligence than it actually does. It's still just an algorithm that just does predictive analysis, right? And it just predicts what word comes next or what it thinks is the best word to come next in any given context. But I've got a guest coming on next week and his name's Keith Smith and he runs a podcast in the US. And I was sort of doing my research and listening to some of his podcasts and he just had someone on who was talking about the fact that, you know, they do video and image, 3D imaging And I can't remember the guest name, so I'll put it in the show notes. I will look it up um, to give credit where credit's due. But what he was saying is, is he said, you know, on any shoot, there's always a creative director. And he said, the creative director is all he's doing is he's prompting us like he would prompt AI to get what he wants from us when we're taking photos of a scene. He's like, that creative director is going to do exactly the same thing with Midjourney or something to get an image or a video of what he wants. And he said, the people who are those creative directors are never going to go away. My question then, and I really want to follow up with them. And I want to say, well, the thing is, is that it's all the assistants that work with that creative director over years and years and years that then gain enough experience to become their own creative director. But if we don't need those people anymore, where does the next generation of creative director come from? And this is the and and people who listen to the podcast know I bang on about this all the time but it's i'm worried about the long term erosion of the junior the new people coming into whatever industry it is it could be data analytics it could be film it could be copywriting it could it could be a, a lot of different things absolutely
1: i think i think it's a really really smart question and i guess and i'll have to listen in to see what what he has to say but my sense is that Some of that talent may go away, but also, you know, we're going to need creative directors and creative assistants who operate in the digital world the way we've used creative directors and creative assistants in the analog world. I think we just have to have that open mindset that says the types of creative thinking and creative direction that we will be getting in this digital world of the metaverse, whatever it might look like, it's probably going to require a different skill set. And the way I explain this to people is I'm, you know, many, many years ago, I was trained as an accountant, but I then focused, I built most of my career as a marketeer. And I don't recognize the marketing role today from what I learned 20, 30 years ago. You know, when you're out there doing television ads and you're, you've got your brand metrics and, you know, you've got your above the line and below the line and all that kind of stuff. And the, the, the chief marketing officer function today is really, really different in terms of the metrics, the tools that you have to use, the understanding, the training that's required, and also the engagement that's required with your you know your CIO and your CFO. It's it's a much much different role from what it was 20 or 30 years ago. And I think we have to think about that when we say, let's look into the crystal glass and say, look, the creative director and those creative assistants are not necessarily going to go away, but the job description of what they need to do and what skills they need to have is going to look different from what it was 10, 20 years ago. That's where we need to keep an open mindset. That will also attract a different type of person into being a creative director or creative assistant versus you know, how that person was attracted 20 years ago. I mean, if I were starting my career today, would I be going down that marketing route or would I be doing something different focused on product or chief information officer or more in the data space? Maybe, but that's to me, the the excitement about what's coming, but we have to inform all kinds of people, young people in schools about the opportunities. You know, I think there's, you know, I think the tech sector Here in the UK and elsewhere uh, until recently, we did ourselves a disservice. We were always banging the drum about STEAM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. You got to study those. And and yes, we still want people to study those. But we didn't talk about STEAM, you know, the art, design. And, you know, when I've spoken to parents recently and they say, well, you know, my son is interested in design or art and wants to keep going. And I've always said, now, now I say, great. Have them keep doing it. Really important. We need people with good art and design skills, creative skills, good writing skills, because what we've seen in the analog world, we need in this digital world. So let's make sure that our young people are able to do that. And again, referencing back to Lucy Powell, she talked about this as part of changing the curriculum. So I thought, that's great. The other side of this as well is how do we upskill and retool and retrain Older folks like me, you know, the 50-somethings, the 60-somethings who need to work longer, who are looking at their skill set and saying, you know, especially in the creative industries, do I have what it takes to work for another 10 years and do I have what it takes to be, you know, a great creative person in the digital space? I think many of them would say probably not, but rather than them say, us saying, well, then, you know, drop out of the workforce or do something else, please get reskilled. stay in the workforce for another 5, 10, 15 years, bring your experience and that newfound digital skill set into your role, whatever part of the creative industries that's in. That to me is the holy grail that we have to work on collectively. Private sector, many of the businesses I speak to have got to be on that page. And also public sector, the government's got to really drive that agenda too.
0: Some of the consulting work that I do is with the innovation hub at Oxfordshire County Council. So I have a good, well, I have a a good, I have a fair bit of exposure to, you know, kind of the thinking inside and and where it's going. And I know a lot of councils, I I work a lot with Cambridgeshire County Council as well and and GCP. And I know, you know, both of them are are working very hard to try and make sure that they're staying current, that they have an idea of what's going on with the latest technologies and how they can use those technologies to really make lives better for the citizens because that's what they're there for at the end of the day. It's there to provide services, it's there to help people and to make sure that, you know, people have a nice environment in which to live and that they get taken care of. There is a strong sense of purpose within those teams already, which is, which is really good. Um, and it's, it's been good to sort of help work on some of those projects as well. The other interesting thing is, is in our very first podcast, actually, we had a, a gentleman on from Devon named Wo King and he's building AI tools for disadvantaged families in particular. And he does a lot of training for exactly for the types of people like, you know, for, for those of us that are a bit older in our 50s. And, um, and what, what I was saying is he said, what's been really interesting by going through the training is, is he said that the people who work the best with AI are people that are older, like much older and much younger. Because they, they don't have any preconceived notions. They right. don't try and make it more difficult than it really is. They don't try and outthink the computer. They just ask it for things in plain English. And then they get better results because they kind of let it do its thing. Whereas I think I'll consider myself on the border. <laughs> but uh, a lot of particularly tech people or yeah. creative people, we, we get so overly detailed about it. And we want it to do exactly what's in our mind instead of letting it do its thing. And so we try and be over-prescriptive. So there could be a really good opportunity to use AI to help. And I, it's exactly like you were saying, I think as we get older and start to you know, maybe come where we would normally come out of the workforce, that having those AI tools might enable us to do different things for, for much longer. And we can use those skills, those communication skills that we've built up over time, you know, to be able to use those tools better. And hopefully, we can be part of the the class or the cohort that actually trains the AI how to deal with people better. And maybe we can teach it some people skills because those of us who were around before there were computers, you know, we had to have people skills. Now, now, not so much. Well,
1: yeah, I, and and I think you know you, you're raising a good point about the importance of human interface because you know I I just don't see that going away. The types of skills that you have in this human interface is key, but I think that's going to be a really important perspective here. And, you know, there are people who are talking about this notion of singularity when the the algorithms are driving the algorithms and driving the algorithms and you think, yeah, that is going to be possible, but where is the human interface? You know, and there'll be an output at the end of all of that, but where is the human interface that can look at that and say, well, well, yeah, that makes sense. Or actually, no, we don't want that. You know, that's I think, I think the human mindset, by and large, you know, we're still here after millennium. You know, we're still able to keep ahead of the curve here. You know, for me, the upside to all of this is how do we use the tools from AI, you know, to continue to drive the advances in medicine and, and healthcare, and also to tackle what I think is our biggest Global problem, which is climate change. I mean, look at the, this is going to be the hottest year on record. You know, June for the UK was the hottest ever recorded. Um, Mother Nature is speaking to us. And so, how do we not only go through this energy transition and all of that, but how do we use the AI? to help us with the metrics, to measure what's going on, to learn, to understand, to try and predict what comes next, and to also help us to come up with solutions that say, look, if we did this or we did that, that will will ease pressure on the climate. And obviously, a lot of human interface is required for that. But hopefully, the AI can help us to tackle those problems and issues. And I think... I sense that there's a growing optimism around the 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 energy transition movement, and I think AI is going to be a a key part of how how we get there more quickly. How do we equip, better equip our grids to support renewable energies? Well, you know, whether it's machine learning or the AI tools, they will play a role in that, and. um, it's a
0: whole nother podcast. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. I mean, but the, 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 the energy and the grid and all that is all. Whole oh, whole I know, and,
1: and, that, and that's that that is a big one. But you know, this is where I, I you know, like you, I look at this as from a glass half full perspective and say whether it's the creative side, the the climate issues, you know, the day to day technology issues, robotics, etc., to to advance things. We've got to we've got to work with this stuff, and it and it will make a difference. There will be times when this will go wrong. And that's where we have to, I think, prepare the population to say, look, we're not always going to get this right. Some bad things are going to happen with AI, but let's not let that derail this hopefully more positive upward trajectory. But we're going to see some ugly things happen. And I just, I feel it and see it today. And I just kind of prepare people and say, you know, it's it's been rough going with misinformation and all that deep fakes. We ain't seen nothing yet. So how do we as a society evaluate all of this stuff? And and this is why I come back to equipping the nation, informing and educating them, closing the digital divide. You know, there's still, you know, I don't know. I think the number is one or two million folks in the UK who still don't have access to digital. You know, Exactly.
0: We're playing around at the bleeding edge of it. And there's a whole load of people in the middle and and the bottom and lower middle, I guess. Yeah. it, this isn't even an issue because it's not even on their radar. No.
1: And, and then, you know, how do you, but when you bring them in, how do you give them the skills and give them the knowledge to to know the do's and don'ts about what you should be doing? You know, don't don't give all of your personal information away for free. You know, the things, you know, the sensitivities about basics like passwords and stuff. I mean, you know, we're all guilty of this, but people who we need to bring in who are just struggling to keep up day to day, but we want them to be digitally engaged, how do we make sure that we we deal with this? One of my bugbears that I've shared with the Department for Education in the past has been, you know, we've got some of the best universities in the world here. But when you leave those universities, depending on what you've studied, by and large, you will have not touched digital. So shouldn't every one of our universities in the UK just at least have a week of Everybody's got to go through, like it used to be with ethics in the past, everybody needs to be skilled on what it takes to be a good digital citizen, what are the tools at your disposal, what are some of the do's and don'ts around this, With and whether you choose or not to use it, that's your choice, but there's so many people, young people, still coming out of our universities today who just don't even touch this, and, and that is wrong because we know this is going to be part of yeah. everyone's
0: future. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And going back to Woking again, one of the things I think he said in the podcast was is that you have to remember that basically AI is like that guy in your office. And so, you know, in my mind, the way I like to think about it is it's no different than any other human, right? You, if I ask someone a question and I get an answer, I don't know what I don't know the knowledge that they use to give me that answer. I don't know whether it's correct or not. You know, they could be lying. They could be lying on purpose. They could be lying by accident. You know, it's what we don't know. Humans are, are the, the ultimate black box. And it, I find it interesting that people want to hold AI to a, a much higher standard. Like it has to be 100% accurate all the time. It's like humans aren't 100% accurate. I, I,
1: think, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, we as humans have learned over a very long time how to evaluate our fellow human beings, and in this case, our fellow co-workers. So I might go and ask somebody for their opinion and I'll listen to their opinion, but I'm also taking into account what their role is, what their experience is, what they've done previously that's gotten them to this point. So we're all more comfortable with that today. But I think when we try and do the same with AI and say, how do we evaluate how it got to that point for pretty much everybody? It's a black box. You just don't know, which is why I think we do hold AI to a higher standard. And it's interesting because as you were saying that, I was thinking about my first interaction with ChatGPT, and I put in a couple of questions and it spit out something. And when I read it, I thought, okay, some of that's right, but some of that's not right. I was like, "Mm." but then I thought, hang on a second, look at what this has just done. This is pretty damn good. You know, you've got to step back and look at the bigger picture. How it got there. I have no idea, but, you know, and that's where we also need to look at open source more proactively to give people that confidence, because I think your point around the high standard, the high bar is a right one. But I think part of that is driven by the fact that people may not trust or understand the source of information, the data pools, that comes back to my comment earlier, how, you know, Garbage in, garbage out, as, as the expression goes in America. You know, how do you know how something got to that point based upon the data sets and the algorithms that have been crunched if you don't understand it or if you don't know? But open source platforms, I hope, will give more people the confidence to say, okay, you know, others have looked at this and said this is good rather than being squirreled away behind a, a locked door. That's something that we need to think about as a society going forward. And that's where I think our regulators are going to play a role here to help build confidence from the public's point of view in terms of how these tools are used. If it's all secretive and locked away and nobody gets access to it, people are going to hold it to an incredibly high bar or they're not going to use it because they don't trust how it's gotten to that point.
0: Well, the other thing that is an example that I always like to use is, is when they were training it to look for breast cancer, they kept thinking that it, was, it wasn't working because it kept misidentifying cancer. And it wasn't until four years later that they realized that actually it was correctly identifying cancer. It's just no one could see it yet. And it was so far ahead in time of being able to see that, that they thought that, it was, that the algorithm was wrong and that it wasn't working. And it was only through the fullness of time that they were kind of like, that's incredible. I'm conscious of time, Russ, and I know you're a super busy guy. There were two things um, I did want to touch on quickly. You mentioned India earlier, yes. and it was one of the questions that I sort of had. And so it was more about emerging markets. And again, because you're part of global tech advocates and you have that exposure to different parts of the world, I was kind of curious about how you thought that they're going to be and, and, and how do you see AI sort of playing out in those markets? And I know you specifically mentioned India Before and and you've been very optimistic about. So.
1: So, India, just to give you some context, so we organized a global tech advocates summit there last November with our Tech India advocates group, and we had 40 advocates from around the world. We all paid our own way, but we had the most amazing week going to Bengaluru or Bangalore, Mumbai, and a second tier city called Hubli. And we learned a lot. We met entrepreneurs, we met investors, we met government officials. But one of the things that we, we learned about while we were there was something called the India Stack. And I do encourage people to look at this. So over the past few years, the Indian government has done a few things with, with its entire population. One, everybody there now has a digital ID. I know in the UK, digital IDs are a concern for privacy and all those kinds of reasons. But everybody in India now has a digital ID. Everybody in India now has a digital Healthcare account, and they're all linked together. So, you know, when you have some a problem, whatever, you've got a digital healthcare account. Literally, over the past five years, I think the number is four to 500 million people in India have opened some type of bank or payments account. So, I think the number is 900 million, don't quote me, or possibly a billion of the 1.3, 1.4 billion in India have some type of bank account or payment vehicle from where it was just a few years ago. And they're putting all of these pieces together and coupled with internet services in India are the third cheapest in the world. So everybody has access. And even <laughs> we had experiences, you know, the, the ven- uh, street vendors selling their wares, you know, not even with not smartphones, but just basic old feature phones, tap your phone to their phone, payment made. So cash is going away. The government is benefiting because more transactions are happening digitally, and they've got a revenue cut on that. But the the thing that really struck me is if you look at the size and scale of India, and this comes back to AI, a market of 1.4 billion people, and everybody's got some degree of access. And then you've got an entrepreneurial class. And in India, they call them, I hope I say this right, Bharatpreneurs. So Bharat is the name of India for Indians. So Bharatpreneurs in terms of, you know, kind of changing the the name entrepreneur. That class of entrepreneurs is innovating like you cannot believe in terms of looking at the challenges and India has enormous challenges and how they drive that. So for me, when I step back and look at what's going on there, one, the transformation is going to be remarkable. But two, coming back to my point about data sets, Wow, they're going to have some massive data sets. And, and that's going to drive the global AI agenda. So, you know, they're also working on the computing power side of things. They're working on upskilling their workforce. When we were in Hubli, we went to an academy run by the Deshpande Foundation that literally goes into rural communities, um, poor rural communities, and recruits young people from 17 or 18 to 21 to come and learn computer science and English. And when we were there, they now have 80% of the students are women, young women. And you just look at what they're doing there. And, you know, some of those students will go back to their communities. Some of them will go to Bangalore or Mumbai and get a good job. But there's a massive transition and transformation underway that underway there that I've not seen anywhere else in the world. And you have to believe that artificial intelligence. You know, you've got... You know, when we talk about the creative industries, you've got the headquarters of Bollywood in Mumbai. You know, they're looking at this as well and trying to figure out. And I spoke with somebody, actually a a Bollywood actor who was here as part of the India Global Forum recently. And, you know, he was just so in awe of AI, but also thinking about what that means for himself and his occupation as an actor in Bollywood. So, So India for me is very interesting. One last point that I always talk to people about now is, is it's not just India, but I talk about this emerging arc of tech that we don't see enough of here in the UK or in Europe, or I say to my friends in North America, you're not focusing on this the way you should be. But from the Middle East, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and now increasingly Riyadh, through India into Southeast Asia, You know, you were at London Tech Week. The delegations that came from Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia was off the scale. There's an arc of tech that is going on there where there's talent, there's entrepreneurship, there's investment, there are government policies to support it. That to me, when I look at the globe and what's happening, that arc of tech in the coming years is what I want to watch. And I think AI is going to be an integral part of that because they're building their infrastructure now and they're learning from what we've been dealing with, with machine learning and other tools over the years. Will they leapfrog? They probably will.
0: It was funny, you mentioned sort of 80% of the students being female. I have a friend who's been working and she's been spending a lot of time in Saudi Arabia working on some of the big the big projects that are going on there. And when I was having a chat with her, she said, one of the things that most people don't realize is everybody still has this image of Saudi Arabia as being, you know, very kind of, and it's male dominated. It's kind of anti-woman almost. And she said, but what most people don't realize is, is that there's a huge thing that the government pays for all of women to go to college. If they want to go to university, the government will pay hundred percent of it anywhere in the world. So If any of the women who are in Saudi Arabia want to go to to Oxford or Cambridge or whatever, the Saudi government will cover all their fees, all their living expenses, all of everything, to get them educated so that they can come back to Saudi Arabia and bring those that knowledge and those skills with them. And so, you know, I think it's like you're saying. I think there's a lot of changes going on in some of those areas that maybe traditionally that wasn't the way, but it's you know they're moving forward at a massively rapid pace where sometimes it feels like in the West we're we're very restrained. I was trying to think of the right word to use. We're kind of restrained and we're, we're very cautious now and we've got lots of rules and lots of laws and we're very careful. And I get this feeling that it's a little bit more, it's, it's a little bit more kind of wild West. It's like, just go and do it. You got a big, crazy idea. Just go and build it. And if it, you know, if it doesn't 170 mile long, you know, city or whatever it is like, sure, just go build it in the desert. See if it works. It's amazing. Yeah. And I
1: think you have, you have to admire that. But I I think to that point, and again, another message that we share with the government is obviously we've talked a lot about our own talent, our own workforce here and how we need to upskill it. But I also equally bang the drum to say, keep the international talent pipeline coming. We've got a good global talent visa, a good scale up visa, let's fix our home office the the processes i still think are broken to enable that talent to come here to your point and your example about the the saudi women let's encourage more students to come here you know i know people look at the net migration numbers which includes overseas students you know and they are kind of oh the numbers are too high and i'm thinking no this is good because you know they're coming here they're learning they're understanding what the uk is all about they're bringing this back to their home markets and Hopefully, some of the relationships that they've forged here, some of their ideas that they've developed here will build that legacy relationship. I think coming back to your earlier question about, you know, where is the UK going, how successful it will be? I think one of the key assets that the UK brings to the table is it is an unbelievable global connector. Some of that is legacy from, you know, the, you know the, the old British Empire days in terms of all of the connections to the various colonies, um, the commercial ties, the trading ties. And now in, in this century, you know, when everyone's interconnected, having your populations that have representation from all parts of the world helps to share those ideas and bring them here. Or when we want British startups and scale-ups to expand internationally, you know, these are the people that you should go and meet. It's that cross-pollination that has made UK tech successful, that I think makes our creative industries so successful that we have to keep nurturing and growing and developing. And um, and we need to facilitate that as much as we can because I see a lot of dynamism elsewhere around the world. And I always say to our government ministers, we need to be connected into that. And let's get the knowledge transfer so that we can develop that here because we've got great talent here. That to me is a, is a key part of what we need to get right over the next 10
0: years. Right. Last question. Again, I'm, I'm sort of conscious of your time and I, I appreciate you taking the time today. This is a little bit funny question, but what sh- if you could make your own sort of dream AI project, to, to make tech better or make the world better? Like what's your, what's your crazy AI vision that if, if you had the resources to do it and could just go do something, do you, do you have an idea of what you um,
1: do? Good question. I haven't really thought about it, but for me, the project would have to come back to the data sets and looking at and bringing together people from different backgrounds, genders, races, ethnicities, people with disabilities, sexual orientation, whatever it is, and to almost create an, um, a massive team of people that look at data sets, both large and small, and scrub them and look at them and say, what was built by you know young white men, lots of coders, programmers, whatever, how do we look at that with a completely different set of eyes?" Because I think one of the fears I have, although I'm a glass half full person, but one of the fears I have is that the, the biases, the way these data sets have been built comes from one segment of the population. And as we build and grow and develop these data sets through AI, we're baking that into a whole next generation. So, how could we almost parachute in the, the data scrubbing team that looks at this and says, Why did you build it this way? Or, you know, I would have not asked that question or I would have not captured that data in that way. We should be doing it this way. And here's why I feel that. That to me, I think would be great because it would give me and I think many other people more confidence that the data that we're using for AI is reflective of the entire population, not just one segment.
0: We could talk for hours on that one topic alone. So, um... Russ, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, just thanks for coming on. Thank Thank you for having
1: me. Great to discuss this with you, David.
0: Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on them all. And follow us on social media. We're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn. But we're the same handle everywhere, which is at Creatives with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify those are our two main platforms and it really helps other listeners find the show and it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure so it'd be amazing if you could help us with that if you've got any questions topic suggestions guest recommendations feel free to send us an email the best email is hello at creativeswith.ai or you can shoot us a message on social media either one is fine We love hearing from all of you and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future. And the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from and what things you'd like us to ask and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So please use that, let us know what you want to hear and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us. And we really appreciate it. So thanks very much. That's it for today. So until next time, take care, everybody, and stay curious.